Back to Basics 2.0 Hazardous and Harmful Chemicals in the Perioperative Environment by Julie Kahn Perioperative personnel use a wide variety of toxic and hazardous chemicals. For example, formaldehyde, methyl methacrylate, MMA. And safe use of such chemicals can reduce the risk of exposures that may cause personnel or patient harm. Hazardous chemicals can cause negative health effects. For example, skin corrosion, eye damage, carcinogenicity, reproductive or specific target organ toxicity, or damage to the environment of use. For example, explosions, fires, corrosion. Some chemicals, for example, glutaraldehyde, may have harmful properties, but the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration may not designate them as toxic and hazardous. There often are applicable federal, state, and local regulations that address handling, storage, and disposal of the harmful chemical, required education, and emergency procedures for spills or leaks. Key principles for safe use of hazardous or harmful chemicals include 1. Eliminating or substituting the chemical where possible and reducing exposure when elimination is not feasible. 2. Handling and storing chemicals according to local, state, and federal regulations, the Manufacturer's Instructions for Use, IFU, and the Safety Data Sheet, SDS. 3. Having the SDS readily available. 4. Performing an annual facility chemical hazard risk assessment. 5. Developing an emergency spill plan and a respiratory protection plan for chemicals listed in the hazard risk assessment according to regulatory requirements. 6. Using personal protective equipment, PPE based on the manufacturer's IFU and SDS guidance for the level of anticipated chemical exposure. 7. Providing access to eyewash stations within 10 seconds of the location in which personnel use or store chemicals that are hazardous to the eye. And 8. Providing personnel with education on hazardous chemicals. This article reviews hazards and mitigation strategies related to the use of formaldehyde, MMA, and glutaraldehyde in the perioperative environment. To prevent exposure to chemicals with hazardous or harmful properties, perioperative personnel should review Section 10 of the AORN Guideline for a Safe Environment of Care and implement the recommendations listed. Practice Point Formaldehyde Formaldehyde is a pungent, colorless gas and aqueous solution that exhibits a moderate fire and explosion hazard when exposed to heat or flames. Formaldehyde and formalin are not synonymous. Formalin comprises 40% formaldehyde by volume and 6-13% methanol by volume, for stabilization, in water. Perioperative personnel commonly use formalin to preserve pathology laboratory specimens. Formaldehyde is a known carcinogen that is associated with lung, nasopharyngeal, oropharyngeal, and nasal cancer in humans. Formaldehyde can cause skin, eye, and respiratory tract irritation, and it acts as a sensitizer. That is, repeated exposures can cause increased symptoms because the hazardous chemical affects immune responses.
Signs, symptoms, and sequelae depend on the type of exposure. For example, inhalation. Level, for example, parts per million ppm. Duration and length of time before provision of treatment. Inhalation exposure can cause tearing of the eyes, burning of the nose and throat, and asthma-like respiratory symptoms, difficulty breathing, pulmonary edema, and pneumonitis. Dermal exposures can cause skin discoloration, pain, drying or cracking of the skin, numbness, and hives. Contact with eye tissue can cause transient to severe discomfort, permanent corneal clouding, and loss of vision. Personnel can become desensitized to formaldehyde over time. Therefore, relying on olfactory perception of odor or eye irritation as an indicator of exposure level can lead to overexposure. Perioperative personnel must follow governmental regulations for formaldehyde, such as monitoring for exposure, wearing appropriate PPE, posting appropriate signage, labeling containers, providing and participating in required education, maintaining records, defining emergency procedures, and providing care after exposure. Formaldehyde storage areas must have a ventilation system that maintains airborne chemical levels within the permissible exposure limits, PEL, an 8-hour total weighted average, TWA, of 0.75 ppm, or a short-term exposure limit, STEL, of 2.0 ppm in an exposure lasting 15 minutes. Safety regulations for handling formaldehyde include 1. Limiting formaldehyde access to authorized personnel who have participated in education on formaldehyde hazards. 2. Posting warning signs at entrances and access points to areas in which airborne formaldehyde concentrations exceed the TWA or the STEL. 3. Using effective respiratory protection, for example, full-face-piece respirator with cartridge or canister approved for formaldehyde protection, when engineering controls and work practices cannot maintain levels of formaldehyde below the PEL. 4. Using PPE based on the potential for exposure, for example, gloves, chemical splash goggles, impervious clothes, aprons, respiratory protection. 5. Monitoring levels of formaldehyde after introducing the chemical in the workplace, after changing work procedures involving the chemical, after reporting employee exposure, and periodically, for example, at designated intervals. And 6. Providing medical surveillance of personnel who experience a formaldehyde exposure above the PEL or STEL. Perioperative or organizational leaders must provide education for personnel who are at risk for exposure to formaldehyde. That is, the individual's formaldehyde exposure level is expected to be at or above 0.1 ppm. Regulations require such staff member education after initial hire or transfer, annually, and when a process change may cause a risk of exposure for all personnel assigned to the affected setting. The education must include information on the safe use of formaldehyde, for example, when to use, how to limit exposure, required PPE, exposure hazards, signs and symptoms of exposure, 
reporting exposures, contents of the applicable U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration Regulation and Formaldehyde SDS, emergency procedures, that is, spill management, and the Medical Surveillance Program for Monitoring Exposure to Formaldehyde. Spills or leaks require appropriate emergency procedures and readily accessible emergency equipment. For example, eyewash station. Designated personnel who have participated in appropriate education and have the required PPE must manage spills. Personnel who are not directly involved in spill or leak management should promptly vacate the area. Ignition sources should be shut off if it is safe to do so, and designated personnel may use a water spray to reduce vapors. Small spills should be mitigated with an absorbent material. However, large spills require containment to minimize movement of the liquid and aid in cleanup efforts. Waste from a spill or leak must be placed into a sealed container, with a label specific to formaldehyde detailing the potential hazards, and disposed of according to federal, state, and local regulations. The incident also must be reported according to facility policy. First aid procedures vary according to the type of exposure. For inhalation exposures, first responders should immediately move the exposed individual to fresh air. It may be necessary to administer oxygen and begin artificial respiration. If the responder suspects that the formaldehyde concentration is very high, he or she should use a self-contained breathing apparatus before attempting to rescue any exposed individual. Dermal exposure requires removal of contaminated clothing and shoes. In addition, the exposed individual should wash the affected area with soap and large amounts of water for 15 to 20 minutes and cover chemical burns, if present, with a dry, sterile dressing. After an eye exposure, the individual should immediately wash the affected eye for 15 to 20 minutes with large amounts of water, for example, at an eye wash station, while holding the eyelids open, and then cover the eye with a sterile bandage if there are chemical burns. After an eye injury or irritation, the individual should promptly seek medical attention that includes an ophthalmology evaluation. Practice Point Methyl methacrylate. Surgeons use MMA, a toxic and hazardous air contaminant, to cement orthopedic prostheses to bone. Preparing bone cement involves mixing the liquid MMA monomer with beads of polymethyl methacrylate or polymethyl methacrylate based polymer. Exposure to MMA vapors can cause respiratory and eye irritation. Individuals also can absorb the liquid through the skin which may result in development of contact dermatitis. Because of its harmful properties, the airborne PEL for MMA exposure is 100 ppm for an 8-hour TWA. Leaders should implement recommendations designed to limit personnel exposures during handling and implantation of bone cement, including 1. Maintaining adequate OR ventilation to eliminate monomer vapor. 2. Avoiding mixing or proximity to MMA being mixed when wearing contact lenses. 3. Following the manufacturer's IFU when mixing MMA. 4. Wearing at least two pairs of sterile surgical gloves 
and ensuring the composition of the outer pair adheres to the MMA manufacturer's IFU. 5. Wearing eye protection. 6. Mixing MMA in a closed system. 7. Exercising caution during the mixing process to reduce exposure to concentrated vapors. 8. Handling bone cement as little as possible, and only after it has reached a dough-like consistency. 9. Changing the outer pair of sterile gloves after handling MMA. 10. Preventing bone cement from contacting the patient's skin to eliminate the risk of dermal irritation, burns, or sensitization. And 11. Disposing of MMA in a hazardous waste container according to federal, state, and local regulations. Methyl methacrylate may penetrate the latex and plastic compounds from which some surgical gloves are made. Personnel should therefore wear MMA manufacturer-recommended gloves and only contact the MMA when necessary. There should be adequate ventilation during the polymerization process, that is, curing. Monomer vapors from freshly implanted bone cement may ignite during electrosurgical device activation. When possible, surgeons should use surgical instruments other than an electrosurgical device to remove excess implanted cement from the surgical site, or when working in the surgical site immediately after implantation. Scrub team members may use an open method to mix bone cement in a bowl. This method can release MMA vapors into the OR and result in a possible exposure. A closed mixing system, with or without a vacuum, can reduce respiratory exposure to MMA when personnel fill the mixing cartridge with MMA liquid, mix the MMA, and evacuate the bone cement from the mixing cartridge before implantation. Because the risks associated with MMA exposure for pregnant perioperative personnel are unknown, use of a vacuum mixer may help lessen the risk of occupational exposure to MMA. When storing, transporting, or mixing MMA, personnel should avoid accidental spilling of MMA liquid. Recommendations to reduce risks of exposure to personnel during an MMA spill include 1. Isolating the spill 2. Removing ignition sources 3. Wearing appropriate PPE during spill cleanup 4. Ventilating the area until the smell has dissipated 5. Covering the spill with an activated charcoal absorbent and 6 disposing of spill waste in a hazardous waste receptacle. When undergoing procedures involving bone cement, patients may experience damage to bone or tissue at the site of implantation resulting from exothermic reactions. That is, chemical reactions that produce heat, vascular erosion and occlusion, neuropathy, and additional effects. For example, hematuria, delayed sciatic nerve entrapment, related to extrusion of cement from the intended site of implantation, and bone cement implantation syndrome, which is a potentially fatal condition. Perioperative personnel should be aware of potential negative patient outcomes related to the use of MMA and implement strategies to prevent them. For example, avoiding electrosurgical device use after implantation. Practice Point Glutaraldehyde. Perioperative personnel use glutaraldehyde, 
a clear liquid chemical with an oily consistency and a pungent odor. For high-level disinfection, HLD, of heat-sensitive devices. Similar to other types of chemical exposures, signs, symptoms, and sequelae depend on the exposure type, for example, inhalation, level, for example, PPM, duration, and work being done, for example, use in sterile processing. Exposure to glutaraldehyde vapor and liquid can cause varied levels of irritation to the eyes, for example, burning conjunctivitis, respiratory system, for example, sneezing, wheezing, asthma, breathing difficulties, or skin, for example, rash, hives, dermatitis. Glutaraldehyde acts as a sensitizer, causing some personnel to react and display symptoms to small amounts of the chemical after repeated exposures. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health recommends a glutaraldehyde exposure limit of 0.2 ppm. The American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists also recommends limiting exposure to the chemical and suggests a threshold limit of 0.05 ppm at any time during an employee's work shift. Glutaraldehyde exposure may increase when personnel access or disturb the solution, such as when preparing the solution for use and during all phases of HLD involving the solution. Because of the hazards associated with glutaraldehyde, leaders should limit the number of personnel in areas in which the chemical is present and employ use of the following. 1. An alternative manufacturer-recommended disinfectant, if possible. 2. A closed system that is automated. 3. A local exhaust ventilation system, or ensure personnel perform HLD in a room with a minimum of 7 to 15 air changes per hour. 4. Glutaraldehyde solution soaking containers that include a tight-fitting lid, are sealed and covered when not in use, are large enough to contain the device and solution without spilling, and are opened only for placing or removing devices. 5. A pump to transfer the solution from the container to the drain during disposal, and 6. Expedient processes to clean spills. Conclusion Perioperative personnel use a variety of hazardous or harmful chemicals daily in perioperative practice settings and procedure areas. Three such chemicals are formaldehyde, MMA, and glutaraldehyde. Personnel should be familiar with the requirements for handling these chemicals, especially if they use the chemicals in their workplace. When it is not possible to eliminate or substitute use of a hazardous or harmful chemical, personnel must adhere to regulatory requirements and should adhere to the manufacturer's IFU and facility policies for handling and storing chemicals to reduce the possibility of exposure and mitigate exposure when it does occur. In addition, personnel should have knowledge of best practices for preventing and cleaning chemical spills. This Back to Basics 2.0 article contains three knowledge checks. I will now read the first knowledge check for the practice point, formaldehyde. Chi, an RN circulator, is preparing for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy for cholelithiasis for Ms. M, a 35-year-old patient. 
During the pre-procedural briefing with Dr. Z, the surgeon, Kai confirms that the gallbladder should be sent informal into the pathology laboratory for examination. Kai obtains the required specimen paperwork and a small leak-proof and puncture-resistant specimen container containing 10% neutral buffered formalin. Kai transports Ms. M to the OR, and the anesthesia professional induces general anesthesia. Dr. Z places the laparoscopic ports and dissects the structures supporting the gallbladder. After Dr. Z extracts the gallbladder from the port, Tina, the surgical technologist, announces that she is ready to place the gallbladder in a specimen container. Kai is completing patient documentation and acknowledges Tina's statement, confirming that he will be ready for the specimen shortly. Before Kai can receive the specimen, Lila, another RN circulator, enters the room to give Kai a break. During the brief handover report, Kai mentions the specimen is ready to place in formalin and Lila confirms she will take care of it. She prepares one of Ms. M's patient labels with the required specimen information and walks to the back table with a pre-filled specimen container. The team uses the readback method to verify the patient and specimen identification information on the label and requisition form. When Tina places the specimen in the container, it accidentally tips and approximately 15 milliliters of formalin splashes on the floor. Lila labels the specimen container and then uses disposable paper towels to mitigate the spill and places the dirty towels in the waste receptacle. In this scenario, who did not follow the practice point? A. Kai B. Tina C. Lila or D. Dr. Z I will now provide the answer. In this scenario, Lila did not follow the recommended practice point. I will now read the second knowledge check for the practice point, methyl methacrylate. During the pre-procedural briefing for Mrs. D's left total knee arthroplasty, Dr. W asks Jan, the RN circulator, to obtain the bone cement. Jan assures Dr. W that the specified bone cement is already in the OR. Jan transports Mrs. D to the OR and assists with patient preparation. The anesthesia professional places the regional anesthetic block, and Dr. W makes the incision after the timeout. When Dr. W is ready to implant the prosthesis, Jose, the surgical technologist, confirms with Dr. W that he should begin preparing the bone cement. Jose uses a closed mixing system with a vacuum and requests that Jan turn on the suction. When the cement is almost fully mixed, Dr. W suggests that Dr. L, the first-year orthopedic surgery resident, test the cement's consistency in a few minutes to determine readiness for implantation. Immediately, Dr. L removes a small amount of cement from the mixing device and begins manipulating it on his latex gloves. He comments on the liquid state of the cement and begins manipulating it between his hands. When the cement becomes dough-like a few minutes later, Dr. L exclaims, it's hot, and drops the cement on the floor. In this scenario, who did not follow the practice point? A. Jan B. Dr. L C. Jose or D. Dr. W I will now provide the answer.
In this scenario, Dr. L did not follow the recommended practice point. I will now read the third and final knowledge check for the practice point, glutaraldehyde. Natasha, an experienced ultrasound technologist, recently began working in an outpatient office-based radiology center in which patients undergo diagnostic ultrasound procedures. Natasha prepares the procedure room according to the facility policy for a transvaginal ultrasound with the help of Ton, her preceptor. After positioning the ultrasound machine in the procedure room and obtaining the transvaginal probe, Natasha reviews the patient's electronic medical record, including the physician's orders, and notes that the patient, Mrs. B, is eight weeks pregnant. Natasha and Tan greet Mr. and Mrs. B in the waiting room and escort them to the ultrasound procedure room. After a short interview, Natasha instructs Mrs. B to change into the patient gown and lap cover and provides time for her to do so. Before beginning the procedure, Natasha places a cover on the ultrasound probe. She performs the procedure and then escorts Mr. and Mrs. B back to the waiting room. She returns to the procedure area to clean the room and disinfect the ultrasound equipment. Natasha prepares to disinfect the transvaginal probe but cannot locate the hydrogen peroxide, which is what she used to disinfect ultrasound probes at her previous place of employment. When she asks Tan for assistance, she learns that in this facility, personnel perform HLD in a central location and use a glutaraldehyde-containing solution. Tan and Natasha transport the ultrasound probe to the radiology center's workroom, and Tan performs the HLD process according to the probe and disinfectant solution manufacturer's IFU. Tan shows Natasha the glutaraldehyde SDS and reviews safety information, such as the dangers of glutaraldehyde exposure, methods for preventing exposure, first aid measures, and reporting requirements after an exposure. As Tan finishes the explanation, Alexander, another ultrasound technologist, enters the workroom and overhears Tan describing the glutaraldehyde safety protocols. He comments that glutaraldehyde is a harmful chemical, and Natasha should do exactly what Tan has told her to do. After lunch, Natasha performs a transvaginal ultrasound examination for another patient, along with Mia, an experienced ultrasound technologist, who is assisting with procedures as needed. When they enter the radiology center's workroom to decontaminate the probe, the soaking container is open and ready for the probe. Mia mentions that she has been assisting several rooms with probe decontamination since she arrived for her midday shift assignment, and that leaving the container open has saved a lot of time. In this scenario, who did not follow the practice point? A. Natasha, B. Tan, C. Alexander, or D. Mia. I will now provide the answer. In this scenario, Mia did not follow the recommended practice point.